CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi listeners, Nolan Bowerly here from Coindesk. I'm hosting a brand new podcast speaking with the top players in the world of business, blockchains, and crypto. It's called The Road to Consensus. We're posting the first episode here, and if you want more, then please subscribe to the link in the show notes. And if you like what you hear, then please join me at Consensus, the industry's largest gathering. That's May 13th to 15th here in New York City. You can find tickets at consensus2019.com. And now on to the episode. Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. Here we'll feature speakers past and present who are behind the stories and trends moving this industry forward. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by Jacob Travinsky, an attorney with the law firm Cobra Kim. Welcome, Jake Travinsky, to Coindesk Global Studio One here in New York City. Hey, Nolan. Thanks for having me. We're really happy to have who's become, I guess, known as the go-to guy on the ETF uh, application. So every time I see you tweeting news on the ETF, it creates quite a storm. Yeah, it seems that way. It's uh, it's kind of funny that I found myself in that position, but uh, I do get a lot of questions about ETFs, and I'm happy to talk about it. So glad to be chatting with you. And just so that I'm clear, I don't think you're an ETF lawyer. I have a little bit of legal training and I saw from your practice that it doesn't look like you're someone who's uh, really the go-to point person on an ETF application. So how is it First of all, let's let's let the audience know what what your practice really does involve generally and then specifically for your crypto and blockchain practice and then how this whole ETF uh inside scoop uh persona on Twitter came about. Absolutely, sounds good. So I am an attorney. I work for a law firm headquartered here in New York, but I'm in the Washington DC office. The firm is called Cobre and Kim LLP. Uh, we are a litigation boutique specializing exclusively in disputes and investigations. So we actually, I think uh, a lot of people assume, as you mentioned, that I'm either a regulatory attorney or a compliance lawyer. That's actually not the case. I'm exclusively a litigator. So I handle a lot of securities litigation. I do a lot of government enforcement defense. So a lot of my clients are individuals or companies who have either received a subpoena from a government enforcement agency like the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or my clients have been indicted and are being prosecuted in criminal proceedings, either by a state prosecutor or by federal prosecutors at the DOJ. I sort of fell randomly into the whole ETF issue uh, when I was following the news about the Winklevoss appeal denial back in July of last year. And, um, you know, I'm pretty active on crypto Twitter. 
Uh, it's a pretty fun place to be. I think a lot of the important conversation is going on on Twitter. And I was just following along with the, the story and the narratives and what people were talking about. And I came to realize that folks were asking a lot of questions to each other about the ETF and how the approval process worked and what the SEC was going to do with the VanEck uh, SolidX proposal, which had just been filed, and why the SEC had decided yet again to deny the Winklevoss ETF. And I noticed that no one was responding to those questions. And a lot of people who I viewed as, uh, you know, very important in the space, people who are running uh, critical and systemically important companies in the crypto industry, and also a lot of traders and other people who are just interested in the technology, were not understanding fundamentally how this process worked. And so I decided to do a little bit of digging on my own and then apply some of what I knew about the SEC generally and how the lawyers over there function. And I just decided to start tweeting about how the SEC, how the SEC was going to handle the ETF. And the reaction blew me away. I, I still... Uh, sitting here now, I'm surprised at how much attention. Nature abhors a vacuum, and when you're providing really valuable insight to everyone, you're certainly going to get a lot of attention. Yeah, it seems that way. And it seems like even now, and especially a year ago, there weren't a lot of lawyers with experience dealing with uh, federal regulatory agencies like the SEC who were willing to engage in the crypto industry and in the discussion, and certainly not willing to engage on Twitter. Uh, since, as I'm sure you know, being a, a trained lawyer, most attorneys are afraid of social media. Just sure. by default, they're very risk-averse. They think that social media can only cause problems. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of lawyers who were capable of answering those questions just weren't going to do it on a platform like Twitter. So, you know, I was really happy to jump in. I, I think when I started tweeting about ETFs, I had maybe 300 followers on Twitter. And a week later, I had 3,000. Uh, and that number has kept going up. So, you know, as, as long as I'm contributing value and helping people understand better what the future of the industry looks like, I'll keep it up. You can start selling all that influence as an advisor on all the future ICOs that are coming up. You know, as a litigator, that's probably the last thing that I would want to do. But uh, sure it is. And, and that brings me to my point. Um, I saw that with the last budget that was passed, the SEC had basically its entire enforcement budget replenished. Um, do you see a lot of that money earmarked uh, for crypto and to prosecute some of these uh, crypto projects? Is this really going to be uh, money directed for enforcement? And is that uh, going to call you to arms to, to go and defend some of these people? I don't think that that money is specifically for crypto. I think that we in the crypto industry tend to think that our industry is the most important one in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I do feel that way mm -hmm. in, in many respects. But I don't think that government agencies like the SEC agree. I think they view crypto as a very small market. Uh, it is a very small portion of what they focus on. I think that they do need to staff up the division of enforcement a little bit more. But I don't expect that they're hiring uh, enforcement lawyers specifically to deal with crypto. They'll hire fantastic, well-qualified lawyers who can handle any kind of issue that comes up, whether it's in the traditional finance industry or crypto. Uh, that said, 
You asked if I think I'm going to be deployed a little bit more in the future uh, in defense of SEC enforcement actions. I, I definitely do think that's the case. I think that the SEC is continuing to ramp up their enforcement efforts. And with even more firepower as they staff up a little bit more, I think there will be even more enforcement actions going forward. Particularly for any egregious case where, where they see that there's definitely been some misleading practices, misleading advertising, and they'll go and make an example. And, and do you sort of when you're looking at a case to take on is it is it a situation where you say okay these guys were unfairly prosecuted or they're going to unfairly prosecute these people like what what's your standard how do you decide whether you're going to take on one of these companies because you have to do the same kind of a due diligence i imagine that an investor would you have to know exactly what this project is about and whether you're going to put your uh, credibility behind it yes we do uh, of course do uh, a good amount of due diligence on potential clients uh, mostly that doesn't have to do with looking into the uh, severity or the existence of a securities violation However, we represent a lot of clients who uh, are entirely innocent of whatever the government thinks they might have done. We also represent clients who have made mistakes, and we represent other clients who uh, in some cases are, are in need of a serious defense uh, to an allegation of willful misconduct. That's not really what makes the difference for us. We try to do the best job that we possibly can for our client, regardless of the circumstances. Certainly, there are times where we talk to a potential client and we have to tell them, based on the facts and circumstances that we see, we think that the probability that the SEC would prevail in an enforcement action against you is very high. And then we advise the client on how to resolve the enforcement action or the threat of an action, uh, depending on what those circumstances are. When we have clients who we are very confident are entirely innocent, we can take a much more aggressive posture against the SEC. We can tell them uh, we don't want to sit down and talk with them. We aren't willing to accept any type of settlement. We aren't willing to make any sort of uh, offer to pay a penalty or comply with any other requirements the SEC might want to impose. When we feel that our case isn't quite as strong, of course, we have to take a little bit more of a, a cooperative stance, uh, and that all just depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. And with the facts and circumstances in mind, the industry itself is so cutting edge, and so many of uh, these cases end up becoming precedent-setting. Um, we're really writing the book on case history as as the industry unfolds before our eyes. Um, we've already seen things like when uh, Mr. Hinman from the SEC mentioned last year that Ethereum had basically mutated from uh, a security offering at the time of the token sale to a commodity. Um, so I'm sure you get a lot of things that come across your desk that would be a first ever. Is there a certain amount of dialogue that you have to keep up with these regulatory agencies to say, no, 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 no you've actually interpreted this wrong. This is a first of its kind type of iteration of X or Y. Definitely. And I'll actually, I'll dispute the premise of your question just a little bit. So you said that we've had a lot of precedent setting as the SEC has uh, announced different enforcement actions and issued orders settling those actions. I wouldn't call that precedent. What that is, is the best deal that the SEC felt it could negotiate and that the target of their enforcement action would agree to under the particular circumstances of that dispute. So it's not there to set a, a benchmark for everyone to follow. It's there because it's the quickest way to get satisfaction for all those involved. I, it's partly that. It's, it's partly what the SEC can convince a defendant to accept. It is also partly so that the SEC can signal 
what they think the law should be in this area and how they think it should be interpreted. I've called this before guidance by enforcement. It's a pretty common term and a common strategy used by enforcement agencies where instead of stating their interpretation of the law, they announce these enforcement actions to use as examples. But they are still examples of what the SEC thinks, not of the law itself. And so we've seen a number of enforcement actions coming out. Uh, for example, the Ether Delta enforcement action, which was the first against uh, a crypto exchange. We saw the Paragon and Airfox enforcement actions. Those were the first against uh, initial coin offerings. There was another one last week against the Gladius network. All of these are very interesting from the perspective of figuring out how the SEC is approaching this area. None of them are enforceable precedent. So just because the SEC says, for example, that Ether Delta is required to register with them as a national securities exchange under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 doesn't mean the SEC is right about that. It means that's their view, and they were able to convince Zachary Coburn, the founder of Ether Delta, to agree and to pay a certain penalty and to cooperate with the uh, requirements that the SEC wanted to impose. But I would say you could have another defendant in another enforcement action with very similar facts as Ether Delta who might say, you know what? I don't believe that the SEC's interpretation of the law is correct. I don't believe that an exchange like EtherDelta should have to register as a national securities exchange. I'm going to force the SEC to prove it in court. And that would create precedent. If the SEC went to court and filed, uh, for example, a motion for summary judgment and had a federal judge write an order explaining why something like EtherDelta is, as a matter of law, a national securities exchange. We haven't had anything close to that yet. So there is still a lot to figure out and a lot of issues that need to be uh, addressed in the crypto industry. And, and to your question, yes, we are constantly in touch with, uh, with different members of the SEC and the Division of Enforcement and outside of it to discuss how they're viewing the space, uh, to get their perspective mm -hmm. on new issues that are coming up, and to try to push the needle toward the way that we think that the securities laws should be applied to the crypto industry, and that's an ongoing process. And, and it is, I'd say, a bit of a myth that there is a sort of hostility, let's say. I, I was, even in 2017, when the Dow guidance, uh, like you just mentioned, these guidances that are not precedent, but nevertheless show thinking and the internal, um, let's say, gymnastics that they're the way they're understanding what's going on in the marketplace has become much more sophisticated. What we saw with the Dow guidance was they were ripping around data sources in the industry with much more ease and facility than I had imagined was going on over there. Um, so is it fellows like you that are going to teach them how to do all this stuff? Is that what's going on? I would give uh, more credit to folks like... Uh, Peter Van Valkenburg and Jerry Brito mm -hmm. over at Coin Center and other projects that are going in just to talk to the regulators. You know, one thing about being a litigator or being a defense attorney like me is we only talk to the regulators when we have to, mm -hmm. when we're doing it on behalf mm -hmm. of our clients. Mm -hmm. We aren't going in just for the purpose of educating them unless it's in the context of a particular subpoena that we've received or a potential enforcement action that the SEC is considering. I really think that it falls to organizations like Coin Center and the Blockchain Association, which is a new trade association started last September, 
to really uh, encourage regulators and politicians alike to get a better understanding of this space. And I think they're doing a very good job of that. So for someone who is tuned into a very sophisticated and complex area of law, like securities law and, and commodities laws... Um, you've seen an entire population of retail investors around the world suddenly become acquainted with uh, what were really obscure and difficult to access laws before and, and regulations. And now all of a sudden there is a, a tremendous education that's gone on and, and you have an entire group of people that have become uh, literate in securities law. Um, how, I guess, personally satisfying is that? It would be, I guess, for a lot of people in Bitcoin that all of a sudden everyone could just talk to you about your your actual field. Has that been an interesting development that you didn't see coming? I definitely didn't see it coming. I, I think I didn't see it coming because you know, securities issues are not inherent to the crypto industry. Securities issues are only inherent to the offering of an investment contract or some other financial instrument by someone who is trying to raise money on the promise that the sale of that financial instrument will yield profit for an investor. That is not inherent to the crypto industry at all. That's not something that happens with Bitcoin to begin with in, in the first place. And so I think I never imagined that the ICO boom which was, of course, enabled by the ERC-20 standard on Ethereum, would end up being such a huge issue for this industry that so many different crypto-based companies would decide to fundraise, not through traditional means, but through an ICO, which in many cases is an unregistered securities offering in violation of the securities laws. I will say it has been interesting. I'm not sure I would call it fun that so many people have started learning uh, about this area of law. It, it is definitely... Uh, satisfying, at least. It's at least a little bit satisfying. It's definitely still surprising to me when I start talking to someone with no legal training at all, and they want to talk to me about how you define the common enterprise element of the Howey test. And it's, you know, it's something that normal people would never engage with or learn about. I, I guess it is sometimes a little bit frustrating because there are so many people who uh, seem to have graduated from the Twitter law school class of 2017 or 2018 and think that reading my tweets or, or others uh, qualifies them to, to analyze law in the way that a lawyer would. And sometimes that takes a little bit more time to explain to them what they might be missing uh, due to the lack of legal training. But it, it's definitely interesting every day, and it is a lot of fun. So you you do see on Twitter or elsewhere very often people list the types of education that exposure to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has given them. So you have a lot of people that say, well, because of Bitcoin, I learned about Austrian school economics. And now through the ICO boom, you have a lot of people who are interested in securities laws. Do you see another sort of familiarity with a particular law that's on the horizon due to this technology? Um, is there another uh, act, another federal bureaucracy that we're all of a sudden all going to become familiar with in, in the next year or so? Definitely. I'll give you a few examples. I think there are a number of different areas of law that folks are going to start getting familiar with very soon. Uh, but, but to give you just the most important and I think the ones that will come up most quickly, I would say the first are the trade sanctions laws. So the federal agency to know for the trade sanctions laws is OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is actually 
a bureau within the Treasury Department. OFAC is responsible for enforcing all of the U.S. trade sanctions laws. The amazing but also uh, potentially problematic aspect about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that they are borderless by definition. You can transact Bitcoin with someone anywhere in the world almost instantly without the government stopping you from doing so. That's one of the things that excites most of us so much about this technology. The problem is that uh, is in many ways directly opposed to U.S. foreign policy as enacted through trade sanctions laws. So when the U.S. government decides that they want to take action against either another country or a terrorist organization or a particular individual, you know, whether that's uh, Venezuela or it could be ISIS or it could be Osama bin Laden, what the government can do is to say it is illegal for any U.S. citizen to transact with that country, entity, or person, no matter where they are. Which means if you do send Bitcoin to someone in Venezuela, in theory, you are violating the U.S. trade sanctions laws. Because of this, some people have speculated that cryptocurrency is a phenomenal way to evade trade sanctions laws, which would limit the power of the U.S. government to enforce its will on other actors in the world. I don't think that the government will take very kindly to that. We've already seen OFAC for the first time in December add two Bitcoin addresses to their sanctions list in, in, uh, in addition to sanctioning two Iranian individuals. Wow. They did. There were uh, was, uh, two guys in Iran who in some way were mixed up in a ransomware attack. And the U.S. government sanctioned not only those two individuals, but listed their Bitcoin addresses, mm -hmm. meaning if you send Bitcoin to those addresses, you have violated U.S. law wow. and you could be penalized for that. I think the more we see global transactions and more use cases for cryptocurrency, the more the government will start looking at crypto as an issue for the trade sanctions laws. I think we're then going to learn a whole lot about those laws. I'll give you just one other example, which is the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing laws. Yeah. yeah, and it, it, it's another bureau of the Treasury Department that enforces those laws mm -hmm. called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. These are laws that are uh, mostly set forth in the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970, which in essence creates a globally surveilled financial system whereby it is very difficult and, and supposed to be more or less impossible for individuals to move money around the system from one financial institution to another without that financial institution monitoring the transaction and possibly reporting the transaction to the U.S. government. Again, cryptocurrency can be seen as a way to circumvent those laws because it is possible to conduct, for example, private transactions or transactions that don't pass through an intermediary. And again, the government is probably not going to look very favorably on that. I would say it's it's even different than uh, circumventing the laws. It almost breaks down the enforcement relationship that has been established, which can be, I guess, summarized with both OFAC and the Bank Secrecy Act, which you basically have are the deputization of the financial system um, to enforce the laws of America. Um, you have banks themselves within FinCEN that if they don't uh, enforce the laws that are established, the penalties are as great for the banks as they would be for the criminals. But what we do see with, with FinCEN anyway, very few prosecutions happen as it is with that information. They're definitely gathering lots of data and lots of information about our, our transactions. 
but they're certainly not using it to prosecute very often. And and so there is still a breakdown anyway. Can you see a wider, um, let's say, recalibration of how some of these uh, enforcement actors end up having to work? Because in the end, you can't really stop the the over-the-border sort of capacity of Bitcoin. I do. I, I think it's still early days, and I think that's why we haven't seen much activity from FinCEN so far. We've seen very limited enforcement actions from them. We've seen some guidance, but not much. Uh, frankly, the most important guidance that came from FinCEN is now almost six years old. In 2013, FinCEN announced that they viewed virtual currency exchanges, which is what they were being called back then, as money transmitters, which means that any exchange, yeah, money services businesses, which means that exchanges would have to register under the Bank Secrecy Act and stand up compliance programs and follow all the other requirements. All the ten thousand dollar transaction things that we sign every time we're on a flight. Exactly, a currency transaction reports is what that is. CTRs, also SARs, suspicious mm-hmm. activity reports. Mm-hmm. All of these requirements uh, apply to businesses handling cryptocurrency. The thing is. There hasn't really been a lot of damage so far to the global financial system as a result of the use of cryptocurrency. That's for a couple of reasons. First of all, there just isn't that much adoption yet. Most uh, financial activity is still conducted through what I would call legacy finance companies, but everyone else would call just the finance industry or financial services companies. Uh, Secondly, We are still in a position now where most crypto transactions can be tracked by the government, meaning law enforcement hasn't been hampered much by the rise of the use of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You'll hear some FBI agents and federal prosecutors saying that they wish more criminals would use Bitcoin Mm -hmm. to commit crimes because it is so easy for the government right now to track those transactions through an open, public, transparent blockchain, much easier than... Uh, For example, someone who is creating shell corporations in offshore banking havens and passing money through those, much harder for the government to track those transactions. I think that with the rise of privacy technology, which we see already in other cryptocurrencies like Monero or Zcash or others, uh, but also as privacy technology is implemented into Bitcoin— either through the Lightning Network or through confidential transactions or through some other method. And the government loses that ability to so easily track those transactions. I think then there will be a realization that this is a real threat to, frankly, the the entire way that law enforcement was conducted for the majority of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we will see a, a call to action mm-hmm. from agencies like FinCEN to try to get a handle on what's going on. And, and to rethink how it is they do their job. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what has happened in the 20th century is as it became harder and harder for law enforcement to track criminal conduct because the world was globalizing, it was much easier for people to communicate and to travel the fallback position, the plan B that law enforcement uh, proceeded with, was to monitor our financial activity as opposed to the conduct that was actually criminal. So, for example, instead of catching a drug dealer carrying drugs across the border of the you know U.S. and Mexico, which is very hard for law enforcement to do, instead what they would do is find the money that is flowing to the people involved in the drug trade, which is much easier for them. And so an entire law enforcement infrastructure was developed where uh, basically the police could just sit back and watch our transactions and identify criminal conduct that way through surveillance as opposed to catching it through traditional means. I think it's possible that if the crypto industry does what we think it's going to do, 
that law enforcement will have to return to the old way of sleuthing and finding the actual criminal conduct instead of surveilling yeah. financial yeah. transactions. That will be very difficult. The actual and, arms dealers and the act of trading money for arms. Exactly right. And and that will be hard and it will require, I think, the establishment of a very different law enforcement system. Uh, I think that that will be a huge challenge for the industry as we move forward, but it's probably a few years off before that becomes a real issue that we start talking about as much as we talk about securities laws today. So we really are seeing this distinction between uh, a, a system designed for surveillance and seizure and censorship versus one that is starting to poke holes in the capacity for that system to be built around surveillance and seizure. Um, is there a middle ground that we're seeing? Is, is JPM coin, for example, something that can um, gather all these forces of uh, a, a global currency, but then still inject these kinds of uh, surveillance and seizure qualities? I mean, we don't know enough about the platform yet, but is, is that something that you guys would look at? I'm not sure that there's a middle ground. I think it's too early to say. I, I do think that on the extremes, you have the traditional system that governments support and are trying to advance, which is a cashless society where all transactions are conducted digitally and where the government has total and complete transparency into all of those transactions on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a system like Bitcoin, assuming that there is good privacy technology, where transactions are done, again, entirely digitally, but without any ability for any government or other uh, large actor to see or censor those transactions. It's hard to imagine a middle ground between those two. I think the closest that we have so far in, uh, in development, as you mentioned, are, are the stable coins. I'm not so sure about JPM coin just because that seems like more of an internal product running through a private system. I'm not sure from what I've seen that JPM coin would be distributed outside of the financial institutions that are permissioned to use it. But other stable coins like, I suppose, Tether or USD coin or uh, Gemini's coin, Trust coin, all of these types of stable coins, in theory, allow people to transact digitally. Uh, and may offer some level of privacy, but would still have an inherent attachment to the fiat currency system. In other words, the way that Gemini's stablecoin works is Gemini issues the coin and Jeff Gemini allows you to redeem the coin, but Gemini will only allow those redemptions for specific people for whom they have performed know your customer due diligence. So if you want to get dollars back from Gemini, they have to know who you are, and they will only issue the stablecoin to people who they know. But in between those two points, the stablecoin can be transacted by anyone, anywhere. And so that might look like a middle ground, but it's unclear whether any of these stablecoins will really succeed. So basically, the the story that, that has been going on for a while in this in industry, and, and one that I'd say most people are, are pretty um, in line with, which is the regulation on the on-ramps and off-ramps. So when you're transacting from a fiat into a cryptocurrency, then there is some KYC that everyone agrees is probably a good idea. But if you're going from crypto to crypto, you know, let your keys fly. It, it seems like that's possible. But of course, it all depends on what the technology enables and what the government is, is able to do with it. Jake, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I learned a lot. 
So this is great. Uh, as someone who was focused on law for a long time and then definitely put my entire career into crypto uh, years ago, I haven't, I, you know, I, I, ca- I keep up with what people are doing, uh, but to hear someone who's on the front lines uh, of litigation uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's been a, a a real pleasure for me to be involved in this industry. I never thought that what I did would be so interesting to so many people. So I'm thrilled to talk to you and looking forward to consensus in a few months. And Jake, we would like to steer our great audience to your uh, deep Twitter insights that you share uh, for free uh, with the entire world regularly. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind sharing your Twitter handle with the uh, Coindesk listeners, that would be really great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everyone can follow me on Twitter at jchervinsky. That's spelled J-C-H-E-R-V-I-N-S-K-Y. Great, guys. Give them a follow. That's it for episode one of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the content, you can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at Consensus2019.com. See you in New York, May 13 to 15.